1: A podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Watt and I'm joined by my dad, John Watt. Hi there, Dad. Hi, Tim. It's good to be here. So this is our part two uh, looking at a kind of initial exploration of the theme of friendship um, inspired, of course, by John's uh, new book coming out later this year, "Transforming Friendship." More on that later. Um, and so, last week we kind of sketched out uh, how the world looks at friendship today. In particular, this what we what what you're calling the hermeneutic of suspicion this this suspicious uh, kind of um, untrusting approach to other people's friendships, presuming that there must be something going on around sex or power or some kind of coercion. Um, uh, seeing, you know, presuming that they can't simply be um, uh, wholesome uh, and we and you, we talked about uh, you know the kind of trace the roots of that to some of that to Freud to Nietzsche to the 1960s and the sexual revolution and ultimately how some of the tragic abuse scandals we've seen in the in the Christian church in recent years have seemed to confirm this kind of zeitgeist suspicion of friendship Uh, Turns out, you know, these uh, what were supposedly or purporting to be kind of older Christian leaders taking young Christians under their wings and and mentoring them and befriending them and shaping them actually were abusing them for their own uh, gratification. Um, And so in this episode, we wanted to move on and say, how how do we turn away from this discredited, broken idea of friendship and kind of reimagine what true Christian friendship looks like? Uh, and I guess your initial conviction is we can't simply wind the clock back and pretend that the 1960s to, to, to present haven't happened.
0: No, absolutely. And, and when you go back and you you see you know what was happening back in the 60s and 70s uh, when I was a young man and so on, when I look back at it now, you know, 50 years, 60 years later, it does seem that people were amazingly heedless and naive about the possibilities of abuse and uh, danger and a sexual element entering into friendships. And and so we can't unlearn what we've learned. But I think it's, it's really vital that we, we think about how do we reimagine friendship for the 21st century, because I'm absolutely convinced that it's a really fundamental part of what it means to be human. And from a Christian point of view, it's a really fundamental part of how we are supposed to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in um, in our spiritual lives, the spiritual formation. So, yeah, the challenge is um, we need to discuss this. We need to think again. And we need to educate people both the positive stuff, how to build a, a strong friendship, what are the characteristics of a healthy friendship, but also what are the red
1: flags, mm. Uh, when things are going wrong. It's interesting, until you started talking about this theme, you know, a year or two ago, when you first started writing the book, I'd never really heard any teaching on, I still haven't really heard any teaching in the various churches I've been part of, uh, about friendship, you know, there's, there's lots about discipleship in church, or in small groups, or in accountability groups, or, or anything like this. But the idea that actually, your friends might be a forum in which, you know, God moves to, to to, to to form us um, it seems very overlooked in, in modern evangelical Christianity I think it really is and I think part of this is that the church
0: has been far more influenced than it realizes by the sexualization of the culture so you know if ever you hear that there's going to be a, a talk or a discussion about relationships, in the church you know that basically what they're talking about is romantic relationships and marriage and sex as though that's the only kind of relationships that are really important um and so when I started um wanting to write a book about friendship I immediately said well I need to try and find some really big books from bible scholars about friendship in the bible and how you know, this has been understood over the years and what the Hebrew is and what the Greek is and all that kind of stuff. And rather to my surprise, there's virtually nothing out there, even from serious Bible scholars and theologians. Uh, I mean, there are endless volumes on the Bible and sex. Um, But when it comes to friendship, again, uh, it seems to have been largely uh, ignored and overlooked by by Bible scholars and, and theologians.
1: Which is particularly egregious when you consider that at the you know the core stories in the gospel are Jesus and his twelve friends. You know these are not romantic relationships. Jesus was single and celibate, um, and yet the much like how the church has has lost touch with its the kind of affirmation of singleness and celibacy in favour of its kind of obsession with the nuclear family it's the same thing as we completely lost touch with how central friendship is to the gospel stories themselves. That's absolutely right. Although I would want to
0: say it's actually much more than the 12 friends because for instance, it's very clear that he has a really close and intimate relationship with Mary, Martha and Lazarus. Mm. And interestingly, it struck me, you know, that Jesus in the gospels, there are many, many accounts where he confronts death and dead bodies and so on. But there's only one death which completely takes him apart emotionally and of course that is the death of Lazarus and the impact it has on Mary and Martha Mm. and and when the onlookers see Jesus being so emotionally involved they they think this is weird I mean this is not the way that a rabbi should behave and then they say see how he loved him Mm. Um, and and it's also clear that 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 many of the women mentioned in the gospel are our friends. This is a this is a friend relationship. Mary, who uh, Mary Magdalene, and Mary who who uh, washes his feet with um, with the ointment, and uh, and many other uh, the other women. And actually, if you take an Old Testament understanding of friendship, one of the most, perhaps the single most important characteristic of a good friend is that they are loyal. And that time and time again in, in the Proverbs and the Psalms, you get, you know, this terrible thing when friendships are broken, when friends are disloyal. So in the gospel, when Jesus says to his disciples, I don't I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. You know, this is a really significant moment. Um, and yet just hours later, what do those twelve guys in the um in the top in the upper room do answer they completely betray his friendship. They turn tail and friend and and run. But there are some of his friends who are totally loyal and they're the women. Hmm. And it's the women who remain with him, it's the women who are at the cross, it's the women who work out where his grave is and prepare the spices. It's the women who go to the grave it's the women who are the who see the evidence of the resurrection and so on. Uh, they are the loyal friends. So, and interestingly then, Peter, who has betrayed the friendship of Jesus, has to three times, there's this very, of course, intense thing, Peter, do you love me? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the restoration of friendship. So it is interesting that once you sort of take this prism of friendship, you see that it's actually there
1: as a, as a very prominent theme uh, throughout the scriptures. So so could you give us a kind of lightning overview of the kind of Old Testament and New Testament biblical view of friendship, given that you know you presumably had to do this yourself if you couldn't find any heavyweight theological, theological tomes to, 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 to jump <laughs> to the find, end? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to overstate the case. I did find one or two really helpful volumes, and I'm very
0: helpful to the people, uh, my friends, who helped me along the way as I discussed this with them. But um, interestingly, it all starts with friendship with God. And again, it strikes me that if you take all the other deities of world literature, uh, the idea that you could be friends with them is ludicrous. I mean, you know, to be friends with Allah would be blasphemous. To be friends with Plato's, you know, ultimate thought thinking itself it would be just laughable. It's nonsensical, yeah. And yet, right from the beginning, the God of the Bible comes into the garden in order to walk with his friends and it's clear that he's not come with some great agenda to discuss how the creation mandates are getting along or uh, you know checking up on them he's just come to quotes hang out with his friends and that's right from the beginning um and so this image of walking with god is an image of friendship which occurs throughout the scriptures so it's there right from the beginning. And then you get these remarkable individuals like Abraham, who is described as a friend of God, and you get Moses and David and others. But then you, you get these images of, of friendship, particularly the two great friendships in the Old Testament, which is Ruth and Naomi and David and Jonathan. And interestingly, again, they're completely different from the kind of elite friendships that we uh, that the greek model of friendship was um, so ruth and naomi is two widows who are absolutely the lowest of the heap and also it's intergenerational and interracial and yet this friendship plays a, a critical role in the whole plot line of the bible and ruth be- becomes in the line that leads ultimately to jesus um and it's celebrated as a as a wonderful example of love. Of, and of loyalty. Love. And love loyalty. You Absolutely. mentioned loyalty
1: because, you know, she has the two daughters-in-law who are both non, non-Israelites. non And after her sons have died, she says, you should go back to your own people and find new husbands. And one says, okay. But Ruth says, no, no, I will stick with you. I will be loyal to you. Your God will be my God. You know, your people will be my people. And I'll follow you back into this foreign land where I will be a despised alien widow the lowest of the low simply out of humble loyalty to her mother-in-law. That's
0: exactly right and what's more uh, it, it, may, it, produce, it that demonstrates another theme which is clear in the Bible and that is that you have loyalties as a, as a result of family but friendship is chosen so Naomi releases her two daughters-in-law her, their familial duty is over she releases them from any obligation, but Ruth chooses to stick, to cling. The world is, it's a very powerful Hebrew word, to cling, uh, to hang on to Naomi. So it's its a choice, but it's frequently crosses generations. It frequently crosses race Um I mean, David and Jonathan. Interestingly, you know, Jonathan is an elite figure. He's in his mid-thirties. He's a proven warrior. He's the heir to the throne. He's he's a, absolutely at the top of the social tree. And David is probably about sixteen, <laughs> um, no more than eighteen, and he comes from a from a absolutely bottom of the heap pastoral non-entity of a family, and he's the youngest kid, and he's just he's just killed. Goliath, which is what could be regarded as a, a sort of cunning uh, shepherd boy trick. And yet Jonathan, from his position, uh, reaches out to him in love and says his and his soul is knit to to uh, to David. And he strips himself of the armor and puts it on. It's on David. So, again, very countercultural, very
1: different from this Greek model. And it's fascinating to me that so many moderns reading the story of David and Jonathan have just so struggled with the idea that it is what the biblical account says it is, a friendship that they say, well, clearly this, they were actually lovers. Clearly, this is a, a hidden kind of gay relationship in the Bible. because, And ultimately, that is an expression of the hermeneutical suspicion, which is that there is no other way why these two men could be meaningful, intimate friends. It Clearly, there is an unspoken sexual element. That's right. And I felt I had to deal with that in the book. So, you know, just point out the
0: fact that all the evidence is that David is strongly heterosexual. He has a whole load of wives. He commits adultery. <laughs> Possibly he... too heterosexual. <laughs> too, too heterosexual <laughs> his heterosexual. Too many wives. Too much <laughs> sex. And, and absolutely. But, but what's more, when he is accused of adultery, of course, he is completely and utterly devastated. And you get this... Terrible yeah. sense, you know don't take your holy Spirit from me, and against you you only have. but the idea that actually, you know just earlier on in Leviticus, where homosexual relationships with men is is described as an abhorrent thing, and yet the idea that David, the man after God's heart, and Jonathan is actually secretly involved in an illicit homosexual affair with Jonathan, and nobody's noticed. So fascinatingly, it looked as far as I can tell, no serious biblical commentator or scholar ever suggested that it was homosexual until after Freud. Really? It's only after Freud comes along that people say, Oh, hang on a minute, I've just had an idea. <laughs> <laughs>
1: of life and death a podcast from premier unbelievable okay so we've got ruth and naomi we've got david and jonathan we've got adam and eve walking with god in the cool of the afternoon uh is that the end of our biblical view of friendship where does it go after that well we got paul and timothy which again
0: i i've looked at in some detail because again i find that very moving um because this is a deeply uh, intimate, caring, um, again, loyal friendship, Uh, Paul describes Timothy as my dear child in the Lord. And yet also he describes him as a man of God. Paul makes himself very vulnerable to Timothy. He shares his failings. He shares his sense of being abandoned and betrayed by others. Uh, He says, come and see me and don't forget to bring the cloaks. And, you know, and and then he gives a bit of advice about, you know, drink some wine for your stomach. (laughs) I love that that's in the Bible. I always have. (laughs) Well, you know, it's fascinating because there's a there's a basic uh, liberal Bible scholars, almost without exception, say this is clearly a forgery. This is the whole of the pastoral letters are pious forgeries invented probably several centuries after. Uh, Paul and Timothy, and clearly, no apostle. If if this genuinely came from Paul, no apostle would be talking about cloaks and parchments and taking wine for your stomach's sake. Whereas, I think that's exactly the whole point, isn't it? That's what friendship is like. You know that this this intimate sharing can move seamlessly from the profound theology to
1: tummy ache. <laughs> And it speaks to the authenticities that who would who would make that up? If you were some kind of super pious Christian in the second or third century, wanting to add to the to the canon of scripture, why on earth would you say? Oh, I know what Saint Paul would say here. He would say, "Don't forget to bring my second best cloak and, and drink some, some 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 watered down wine for your tummy." Ache. I mean, it just it speaks of, as you say, these are meaningful letters between real, living, breathing historical human beings who had a full experience, a full gamut of of human relationships. That's right, and, and um,
0: so in, in summary, I, I think there are several aspects of what it seems to be healthy friendships, which you can draw out of the Bible. And I've, I've adopted this idea of a gospel-shaped friendship. I was talking to a friend of mine, David Zachner and who uh, is a bishop in Uganda. And he had a very close relationship with John Stott, and as a young man, and uh, I know I knew it was deeply meaningful for him. And I, and I asked him, I said, "How would you describe your relationship with with uh, John Stott?" And he paused and he said, "You know, John, it was a friendship carved out of the heart of the gospel." And I, I, that phrase has haunted me because I think it says something very profound that the the deepest and most intimate friendships we can have are friendships which are are gospel crafted and that they sort of reveal the the logic of the gospel they reveal the characteristics of the gospel and in my book i've listed a whole number of characteristics i think uh gospel crafted friendships have but i i would list uh just a number but i think number one, they're founded on truth, that there is this level of sharing heart to heart. That's what you see in the Bible. That's the heart of a friendship we can have with God, is just being utterly open. And um, and in our human friendships, we can healthy friendships are based on the truth. And what you can really see in these terrible abuse scandals is that there was a a covert element. It was fundamentally built on a lie. What this person who seemed such a godly man, a a godly Christian leader, actually there was something else. There was a hidden and much more malign element
1: uh, to the friendship. Yeah. And when these Christian leaders were telling the rest of the church, oh, yes, I meet up every Thursday afternoon with so-and-so to study the scriptures and to pray together actually what they were doing was you know he was beating this poor, ch- poor person violently in the shed or or engaging in in bizarre um kind of naked showers together and things like this that where clearly he th- th- these kind of abusers knew that if they were to be open and and vulnerable about what this friendship even if they you know in their own twisted way thought that what they were doing was kind of spiritual and edifying they clearly knew enough to know that they couldn't be open about it they couldn't be honest to themselves or to the wider church family about what this French supposed friendship actually consisted of behind closed doors.
0: That's absolutely right. And I think that that's a test of a friendship, isn't it? That how honest can I be with my friend? How honest can they be with me? And um, when you've experienced that level of honesty in a friendship, it's, it's, it's astonishing. It's, it's quite liberating to discover Here's this other human being, and you know what? I can be utterly, I can lay myself open before them. And they don't shrink back in horror and say, blimey, John, if I'd known quite how revolting you were, I could never go anywhere near you. But actually, it binds us together, and they share some really deep stuff that they're struggling with or
1: or whatever. So And that's ultimately grounded in in the truth that, in, the, in the gospel as you said in the beginning because that is what we experience in God that that's the transforming power of God of the gospel is that God sees us in the round in our totality in all our brokenness and our sinfulness and yet says Tim I still want to be friends with you I still think you are worthy of of close intimate eternal friendship so much so that I sent my son to die
0: just a few days ago I was at a at a, a funeral in fact where we were singing this song indescribable uh and and it's the line where having talked about the wonders of the creation and so on, indescribable, it then talks, it says, You see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. And I'm always moved by that shift from the universe, the glories of the universe, to the fact this intimacy, um,
1: which which does go to the heart of, of gospel shaped friendship. So, gospel-shaped friendships are are truthful, are honest, non-deceptive. That's one kind of strand that we pulled out of out of scripture. What What's the next one? So, the next one I was quite surprised about, and that is this covenantal aspect.
0: So, both um, Ruth and Naomi and David and Jonathan, explicitly, it says in the Hebrew, they cut a covenant. They had there was some kind of ceremony whereby. They took out a lifelong covenant, uh, and particularly with David and Jonathan, that it led ultimately to their death. Jonathan dies d- uh, defending David and and being loyal to him, even though ultimately it cost him his life. And and it's this idea that I will be loyal to you to my death, and you will be we, you will be loyal to me, and we explicitly state this covenantal lifelong commitment now as I reflected on this, I mean, it doesn't sound very British, you know, I haven't gone to any of my friends and said, would it be okay if we just cut this covenant together? But um, it, it did, it, it has occurred to me that ha- having said that, when I think of just a handful of my closest friends and relationships that have been going on for decades, in effect, we have got that kind of covenant, it's an unspoken covenant, I know that my friends will be there for me whatever happens in the future, and that I will be there for them, whatever happens in the future. So there is this kind of covenantal element into the, into the
1: closest friendships. And this point feels particularly countercultural, because it's the presumption almost unspoken, I think, uh, in culture for both Christians and, and non people outside the church is that friendships are organic and spontaneous. Uh, you know, everyone kind of acknowledges that that romantic relationships involve some kind of choice. And, you know, you talk to your partner saying, you know, would you like to go out with me? Would you like to be my boyfriend? Shall we get engaged? Shall we get married? You know, let's define the relationship. And yet there is no equivalent kind of social expectation, or even kind of language you can necessarily use to enter into some kind of covenant, people just fall into friendships. And it seems to me and the ones that persist are just the ones that have persisted without any kind of overt intentionality at the outset.
0: That's right. And I was very struck. Uh, A single lady, middle-aged lady, who is uh, a Christian who's lived a life of celibacy and had an extremely close friend who, you know, they was like a bosom uh, friend, another Christian. And her friend, another woman, single woman, died of cancer. and, And my friend was completely and utterly devastated by this. But she said, "What was most painful was that so many other people just couldn't understand why she was so. It wasn't as though she you were married. It wasn't as though she was family. I mean, she was just a friend. So, so it's this kind of demeaning and trivializing of friendship, which which doesn't you
1: don't get in the Bible at all. Hmm. But is it really realistic for us to sit down with our closest friends and kind of sign a? covenant or whatever that would look like I mean how is that even going to work out in practice in in 2023 how how do we establish these kind of covenantal lifelong commitments because is, is it even is it to make a lifelong commitment who knows where I'm going to be in 10 years time can I really sign up to be friends with this person forever but
0: who how did David and Jonathan know where they were going to be in 10 years time either or Ruth and Naomi I mean you know have relationships changed or are these? Are there some? Is there something fundamental here? I mean, I don't know. Is the honest answer? I think it just. I what I think has come out of this is I think we should be more self-reflective on our friendships. Um, our friendships are ones we choose. Um, we don't have to be friends with people. You know, we have commitments and duties in our family. We have commitments and duties in our Christian families, our brothers and sisters. But friendship—the essence of it—is it, it's a choice but when we've chosen who is really significant in my life i think it's actually quite good to talk about that you know would it be alright if we talked about our friendship for a bit you know how you know this is feels like something i do want to commit myself and say we're going to be to you know i'm going to be there for you
1: do you feel the same hmm. and it's certainly true i think in my experience that there is an unhelpful ambiguity in some of my friendships not all of them, but some of them, where I would like there to be this kind of clarity that we have committed to each other and we're going to stay in touch and check in and talk about real stuff, Christian stuff, but it's never been explicitly stated or agreed. And so you're never entirely 100% sure the other party feels the same way and would like this friendship sees, kind of views the friendship in the same light. Whereas yeah. there is a there is a pleasing clarity about, you know, a marriage because you've literally said <laughs> these vows out loud in yeah. front of witnesses, word for word, and so everyone knows where they stand and what has been committed to. Whereas friendships exist in this kind of soup of ambiguity.
0: That's absolutely right, and and I, it's interesting, isn't it? Because because of course there is a complete spectrum from friendships which are trivial, those which are just for a time, you know, through to I'm talking about a handful of friendships which which are really covenantal. Um, so I think the third element, which I've already referred to is this idea that they're free, that they're not a a duty of obligation. Um, and, and of course that means that we open ourselves, we give the other person permission to walk away, uh, which is must, is painful, but nonetheless, we mustn't be coercive or abusive. I mean, this is where we get into the negative stuff. Um they're free. Um, and uh and therefore it takes two to tango. And sometimes you find, you know, as you were saying, I'd love to be friends with this person. I'd really love to get to know them better, but frankly, they they're obviously not that interested. And you just have to accept that.
1: And this comes back to that point we already, that verse you already mentioned, you know, where Jesus talks to the disciples and says, you know, I will no longer call you servants, but call you friends. And the power of that is not just in the The intimacy of the relationship that we are invited into primarily but it's also that 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 jesus has chosen us like we said jesus has looked at his disciples and by extension you know those who would come to follow him afterwards after his death and resurrection and said yes i choose to welcome you in i choose to be your friend you're not obliged to me i'm not obliged to you we've both freely entered into this um uh, choosing each other there's a kind of mutuality i suppose and as well as a, a freedom there there absolutely is. And, and that's
0: why, actually, you know, this is a very profound element of the, our relationship with God uh, and a very wonderful element, this um, uh, this idea. But then I think we get on to the three negatives, and, and each of these negatives really is a red flag. Hmm. So to put them together, then t- in order to be healthy and transparent and free, they have to be non-sexual, they have to be non manipulative or non coercive and they have to be non exclusive and it seems to me those are the three red flags where something's going wrong in a friendship it's either because a sexual element enters there's some kind of sexual gratification some kind of i'm i'm using the other person as a sexual object it's no longer am i genuinely interested in them and of course, what we now know is that a sexual element can enter into any relationship. They can enter into same-sex friendships. They can enter into cross-sex friendships. Uh, all friendships can become contaminated with the sexual element. Hmm. Secondly, the, once there's a kind of coercive element, and that there are many different ways that that shows itself, but things like, you know, using subtle emotional pressure to to force people to do uh, what you want them to do, uh, you know gaslighting, people talk about love bombing, which is when you know you see that in the abuse scandals people say, you know you're a wonderful person, I'm just yeah you know, you're just so amazing, and I think God is going to bless you but but I'm really don't like it when you do this and you know if you do that, I get really cross and angry and and it's this kind of oscillating between uh love bombing and then accusing. And then finally, non-exclusive. I, I think that unlike our sexual relationships, which are intended to be exclusive, our friendships are actually designed to be non-exclusive. That, and the, and the paradox of friendship is the fact that I can have this really deep, intense friendship with one person. That's in no way diluted by the fact that I've developed this friendship with someone completely different. In fact in many ways the friendships can become stronger because of my experience of friendships with other people
1: yeah there's a lot of wisdom there one one thought across my mind when you talked about non-exclusivity and the contrast with for example you know the bible's vision for god's vision for marriage as it's intrinsically exclusive there's a, there's a common kind of theme in 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 modernity which is to say that you know one spouse is one's best friend at the same time and so there is a sense in which you're you're not just you don't have a separate marriageship, but actually your 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 key most important friendship is also your spouse. Do you think that's kind of unhealthy? Is that or is that is that contradictory to this idea of non exclusivity among friendships? Yeah, it's interesting. I, you often hear people say that my best friend is my spouse,
0: but increasingly I've come to think actually that's unhelpful language. No, she's not your friend, she's your wife, or she's your husband, or he's your husband. That's, yes, there's a friendship element in marriage, but it is not the same as, quotes, friendship. And in fact, um, it's, I think many counselors and psychologists agree that if you want to put all your intimacy needs onto your spouse, you create far too much pressure on the marriage we all we need to be a, have a healthy network of friendships which are different from our marriage relationship hmm. um so i think it's helpful to actually see the distinctions between a bible understanding of marriage and a bible understanding of friendship
1: rather than to somehow blur them together and it certainly also has the unhelpful side effect of of making people you know you hear this a lot actually in particular my, gen- my generation in church of well as soon as they got married they ditched me as a friend
0: Absolutely.
1: As soon as as they got married, they were no longer interested in me as a single person, even though we had shared a deep, intimate friendship until that point. But suddenly I had been replaced by the wife or the husband. When actually, as you say, if these are quite different friendships grounded on quite different kind of biblical, spiritual soil, there's no reason why a person getting married, you know, when you got married to my mum, it didn't stop you maintaining deep, significant friendships with everyone else, including people like John Stott and others.
0: No, that's right. And in fact, quite the reverse. I think we both of us, Celia and me, realized that actually encouraging one another to continue and deepen our friendships was good for the marriage. Uh, As long as, of course, there has to be this understanding about the exclusivity and the sexual exclusivity. So, again, there has to be transparency, there has to be openness and honesty. But I think that positively we should be encouraging people to be building and nurturing and developing these
1: positive friendships and just lastly then one of the things i think that's really interesting about this discussion about friendship is is as we mentioned earlier how untalked about it is uh, in the church but in particular i think for 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 younger people from my generation and below there is a kind of vague hard to define but there is something there in our culture in our generation about loneliness and people feeling like an absence of friendships, or at least an absence of deep, meaningful, lifelong friendships. There's a kind of sense of transience in that people are always just kind of floating around, moving from job to job, from place to place. And it's really, I often hear the refrain, it's really hard to build the kind of friendships, you know, David-Jonathan friendships, Paul-Timothy friendships, Ruth-Naomi friendships that we see in scripture, um, or even perhaps hear from from older generations, that there's, you know, we're, we, you know, the kind of great cliche, of course, is that we're more connected than ever before with the internet and our phones, and yet people feel more lonely than they ever have before.
0: That's absolutely right. And I think that, um, I mean, there are many different aspects of this, and we probably haven't time to unpick it a bit. But I do think that if we want to build these kind of really meaningful face to face friendships, it takes a serious investment in time and energy. And what has happened in the 24 seven always on internet age is that there are so many other ways of spending your time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, there are so many box sets on Netflix and there are so many ways of on social media and, and news channels and computer games and so on. And and the idea that instead you say, no, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to spend two hours having a cup of coffee with this person because this friendship really matters and I think that's probably what we've got to do. Someone said to me, "Love is a four-letter word Spent four-letter word spelt T I M E. I think that's actually very profound. That's that's the only way. We've just got to say, this is so important. And I'm, I'm talking to myself as I say this, because I've felt quite convicted writing this book. I've also realised, of course, I've now opened to myself that all my friends are going to say, yeah, it's really interesting, this book. You know, it's, 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 I don't quite recognise mm, this. Yeah. I'm going to live with this for the rest of my life, I now realise. You know, you should mm-hmm. never write a book on friendship. <laughs> <laughs> but I have felt convicted that I really need to, these, there are certain special friends that I have just got to make developing and preserving and protecting this relationship the top priority because this is covenantal but also that god is in there god is reaching out to me in my friends and i, that, I close with that there's a wonderful thing that bernard of clairvaux the ancient mystical uh, writer of the medieval period he said christ himself kisses us in the love of our friends and i've experienced that uh, many times particularly at dark times that actually, it's through friends that I've experienced the love of Christ. And so, promoting, encouraging,
1: and reimagining friendship, I think, is something really important for the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that seems like a very appropriate place to draw our conversation to a close. Thanks, everyone, for going on this little journey into friendship um, over the last couple of episodes. Um, as we mentioned at the top, uh, this all comes out because Dad's got his new book, Transforming Friendship, coming out. When was that coming out again? September, I hope. September. So we'll have some more details about that near the time, I'm sure. And, and you can find links to to pre-order it when that's available on, on johnwyatt.com. Where well, we're also hoping hoping to upload some, some more reading material and other things about this idea of friendship, because there's obviously loads more in the book than we could have possibly covered in the last hour and a bit. So do uh, keep an eye on the website. Um, and as always, we, we're welcome, interested to hear your emails and your thoughts. So um, get in touch with us on this theme or anything else that you've heard of. Uh, MOLAD, M O L A D, at premier.org.uk. But otherwise, thanks for listening. Uh, and we'll speak to you next week. Bye bye.
0: A podcast from Premier
1: Unbelievable.